Happy New Year and welcome to Black Diplomats, a foreign policy podcast about safety and security. I am your host, Terrell Starr. Our guests today are Asha Castleberry Hernandez and lovely Umayam. Castleberry Hernandez is a military officer, professor, and the primary co-founder of Diversity and National Security Network. She also ran for Congress out of New York, and we'll definitely be talking about that as far as what she's learned from it. And it's just, I just think it's so important that we have veterans that are running for office, but we'll, we'll talk about that. Next, we have Umayam. She's the founder of Bombshell Toe Collective. It started as an educational website that uses iconic pop culture references in film and television uh, to demystifying technical concepts used in the nuclear policy field. It has since evolved into uh, in-person and web-based projects featuring nuclear engineers, activists, historians, artists, designers, and other expertise to explore how nuclear issues touch our everyday lives and intersect with urgent social issues. Lovely is a non-resident fellow at the Stimson Center, a think tank in Washington, D.C., conducting research on the potential application of blockchain technology for nuclear security. Welcome to the show, y'all. Yay! Yay! Happy New Year, guys. Happy New Year. I mean, you know, the, the first thing that comes to my mind on the second day of this new year is, God damn, fuck, we made it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> no, yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. Shit. I mean, God damn. I mean, when you think about what happened in 2020, more than 300,000 Americans died from COVID-19. There are wars that don't take out that many people. Mm-hmm. Okay. But what really is on my mind is the reality that this pandemic demystified everything that we thought America was, right? We would quite frankly assign what's, what, what is happening and what happened in 2020 with a quote unquote third world country, right? This, this language that we use third world, right? And America in regards to how it treated its people when we needed when 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 our when when our people when the american people needed this government to work for them it it failed and i know we all have people who are touched by the pandemic and everything but it touches so much on what i'm doing this podcast for which is what does security really mean what does safety really mean for us and we're going to get into all the stuff about Iran and America deploying the B-52s in the Middle East to intimidate Iran and all this other jazz, but none of this shit can stop me from being sick. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, 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 Sasha, yeah, I want, I want to get your thoughts. No, I agree. Uh, none of it's going to stop us from, you know, getting sick. Uh, you, uh, you know, 2020 definitely, uh, let us know uh, or, you know, define our national security priorities, which was the, definitely the pandemic. And then, you know, also racial inequality or racial injustices, as well as economic insecurity, uh, you know, prioritized in 2020 to where other issues like what we're talking about in terms of military aggression, or Iranian aggression in the Middle East became less of a priority. So, um, and that makes a lot of sense. If, if a threat works when it creates internal instability in your country people can feel it and 
you know, and it and it, a threat works when it doesn't when it does not discriminate. It affects everyone. So uh, we can definitely say that you know a pandemic is uh, definitely our, our priority. Uh, and, and especially if you have lost people in your households like mine, I've lost my father. I lost my father's brother. He was only 46, and I lost my grandfather in 2020. So it be, I become, of course, less interested in what's going on around the world. Uh, so I definitely agree with you. Mm-hmm. Lovely. What What are your thoughts? Yeah, man. I I just really want space from 2020, but you know we're just in a continuum, right? Like it's just because it's a new year, it doesn't mean that we can forget. Um, and I don't want to forget. Actually, 2020 was destabilizing and decentering uh, for me as a nuclear policy expert. Just like Asha, um, I had family members affected by COVID. My father almost died from COVID um, in March, but thankfully he survived. And I think that it really made me rethink what security means to me, even though um, on paper, I'm supposed to be um, researching and contributing to, to work to, to save the world from one of the, the baddest inventions of man, mankind, nuclear weapons. But all of that seemed so irrelevant last year and, and beyond, you know? Um, so 2020 for me um, is a year of isolation, but it did grant me time to, to contemplate um, and just sit still with my feelings and do a lot of inner work. And so I'm, I'm really looking forward to continuing that some more this year because you know we're, I'm not anticipating that we're gonna start gathering in groups and getting together again until maybe the fall if we don't bungle the COVID vaccine rollout, right? Um, and so I think this is just really the time to, to be um, better learners um, and uh, better citizens. Yeah. When we think about all these larger conversations about abolishing nuclear weapons, all these big picture questions, the money that is invested in this bloated defense budget and our Pentagon budget and nuclear weapons, I always think about the people who say we don't have the money or the resources to support these sick people or for healthcare, it just seems, not seems, it is bonkers to me. And I feel it's it's twisted, right? It it, it genuinely feels twisted that people in power in DC can go to sleep at night knowing that we have this budget with the Pentagon, which has not received like a a real legitimate audit or, or being forced, right, to really adhere to strict by you know budgetary guidelines where in the same space you have people who are literally sick and dying in the best country in the world we can't take care of them i mean it's just sickening but i want to focus on what we're looking forward to so what i am looking for yeah because it's just getting too fucking depressing right so what I so so what <laughs> so so I think in the in the work that we all do, I mean, like you just have to have a tolerance for for the dreary and the dread because you know wars and 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 weapons of death cause that inevitably. But what I am looking forward to is this new administration. I think that Joe Biden comparatively is heads and bill uh, heads heads 
and hills and heads above much superior to, to Donald Trump. You know, the occupant in the White House is finally gone. When the election the uh, results came in and Biden won, I, the first song I played was The Wicked Witch is Dead. And, and so I, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to somebody <laughs> who is competent, okay? And somebody who, look, I'm more on the left, the farther left progressive side of things, but I think that Joe Biden has a heart, okay? <laughs> Let's just start there with the basic humanity. He has a heart, right? He, he breathes and when he looks into your eyes, I believe that he genuinely cares, regardless of whether or not I see his policy views aligning with mine. But he's competent. And I think that playtime is going to be over in regards to COVID. And he's not going to fuck around. I think that, I think he's going to take this much, much a bit more seriously, much, ser much, much more seriously. And I think that's a good thing for us. You know, there are countries that literally shut their shit the fuck down. You can't fucking go. You can't do any of that shit, right? And I don't blame them. And, and, and ironically, a lot of the countries that are doing it better and are really contained it are the, con the, the countries on the continent of Africa, right? The, the, you know, they've done a good job in the Caribbean, but you know, they, they're, they're, they're colored folks. And so we really can't really magnify how great they are. But I'm just looking forward to competence. I mean, that's such a low bar, but that's how I feel. So Asha, what are, what are you looking forward to? Oh, I mean, there's so many dynamics that are running in my head right now, but I love <laughs> competence. Um, I I think that's a real problem in the United States, not just John, Donald Trump. Donald Trump ended up in the presidency because of low information voters that, you know, are in some ways politically incompetent or policy incompetent, right? He went against a lot of our uh, institutional international norms that did not build up to any uh, desired outcomes that we want in our domestic and foreign policy. And they have to admit that right now, that it did not bring any desired effects here. So uh, I think there's a big need for a learning curve for in the American people of understanding the world we live in, our global security environment, and how can we effectively counter these uh, domestic and, and external threats. And I don't think we're there yet. But I want to mainly like shift over to Congress, our lawmakers, our policymakers, that I think if the American people aren't, at least they need to be. And there's some issues there too, still. Uh, you know, you're seeing today with the Ted Cruz uh, lead on trying to go against uh, the electoral uh, vote certification. That is undermining our democracy. That is pitiful. And that is also making, a, that's a, a ripple effect on making people a lot more, sorry to say, stupid when it comes to um, you know, our, what our democracy should look like right now in the United States. Uh, we also want to make sure, we also want to talk about the fact that, going back to what you said, we're trying to balance our international wants and our domestic needs, and we're going to have a big fight with that. Our polarization in the United States and on in Congress is real bad, and mm -hmm. we have to keep and I think what we're realizing is that we're in a global security environment where great competition, great power competition is at its peak, as well as we're still countering terrorism. We're also uh, countering climate changes and, and now a pandemic. So everybody has to get on the same page on what is our new global security environment? How can we effectively counter it together instead of going pulling tug of war with each other over money? Right. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, and my last point is I do see where there is this tension between lawmakers that 
you're going to see a big defense budget, not because we just want one, but we're trying to keep up with the Chinese and the Russians. Yeah. More contested. And in the meantime, you're going to have lawmakers say, hey, we need more money to invest in people. But again, we're not willing to give that because we're too busy trying to keep up with the world because the United States has lost its unipolarity. I mean, we're more contested. China, like you said, is going to be more of a, a policy priority for this administration because they're, because they're showing that they're less and less scared of us. So we'll see, but it's going to be a lot of debates going on going into the new administration. Asha, I want to get in. So we're going to talk about the why, right? And, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get into it a little bit later. But uh, Lovely, what are you looking forward to? I don't know. I think you guys nailed it. You know, competence, heart. <laughs> but also, I would just add... Basic shit. Okay. <laughs> no, but I, I would just add truth to that. Um, I think uh, I, you know, one of the things that uh, just really, really um, scared me. Um, and, you know, this really started in 2016, but I think we saw it in full force 2020, is just this um, abolishment of truth. Um, I just seeing how fake news sort of uh, spiraled out of control um, and affected some of the pillars of our democracy. I'm really looking forward to um, what the Biden administration will do in order to reel us back and anchor us back into truth again. Um, I don't know how they will do that. It's really difficult um, with, you know, technology, polarization, um, ideology, but um, there's something in me that feels more um, at ease knowing that someone like Biden will be in charge moving forward and hopefully that will help sort of pivot us away from, um, you know, untruths, so to speak. Um, and I guess uh, just to add to Asha's really great point about the spheres of domestic policy and national security overlapping. I mean, I do think that there is a little bit of a silver lining um, in 2020 in that it really helped everyday people become more attuned to how these spheres interact and feed off of each other. You know, witnessing how the pandemic hit us at home and abroad, how different governments responded or continue to not respond to the pandemic, um, how uh, racial justice, um, you know, and, and democracy, all, all of the protests around that also knows no borders. Um, I'm, I'm really excited to see how the, the way that we just talk about it culturally um, could potentially affect politics moving forward. Definitely. So let's get into the news, starting with y'all's favorite U.S. Secretary of State ever, Mike Pompeo. So <laughs> on the first of the year, Pompeo tweeted, swagger to represent America with pride, humility, and professionalism. We've done it. Hashtag swagger. <laughs> Lovely. I mean, what the fuck is what I'm, you know, so did you, okay, so here's the thing. This is just the one, the, the first tweet that started. Then he went on and he kept hashtagging swagger. I'll tell you what, I'll tell you the first thing I thought about as a black man, which is I thought swag, right? Right. So <laughs> swag is a whole different thing than swagger, right? So, so I'm like, are they fucking up swag? I'm like, okay, you swagger. And 
I part of me believes that he's trolling. And part of it makes me believe that he actually wanted to sound cool. Right. That's part of it. I think that's part of it for me too. But not only that, swagger, even just interpreting it with the most objective feel and, and trying to give him the benefit of the doubt, which I don't, but I'm trying to, I can't conceive any notion in which like this, basically this man is just, he's, is a combination of being tone deaf. I think he was trying to be cool. And given the fact that the world pretty much hates us and they've treated American citizens like the outbreak monkey, I, I don't, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I, I just, don't understand where that makes sense. So, Asha, what did you think when you saw those tweets and hashtag swagger on each of them? Well, like you said, he trying to be cool, but he ain't, right? So, <laughs> num number two, again, just like what Lovely said, the disinformation, the incompetence. Are you kidding me? Do you, did you hear Joe Biden the other day say about how terrible these agencies are right now? They are in terrible shape, including the State Department. The State Department was gutted under Pompeo to where it was so embarrassing that when you had our allies, our partners looking for us at our embassies, we were nowhere to be found. When they called us, we were nowhere to be found. And as a result of that, not only that, that, in, that, uh, that invest in disengagement, which is crazy, but we lost our opportunities when it came to info exchanges, intel exchanges, as well as economic opportunities. Are you kidding me? This, the State Department is, is so bad right now. I, I, I mean, it's, it's really sad. And my last point I wanna say what's really just horrendous about this, the American people give their taxpayer money to invest in these agencies. I have yet to hear from the American people, especially from the Trump side, how he has destroyed a lot of these agencies. You should take pride in your agencies. If you don't think they don't work, that's that's fine. But I'd rather them not work and be functional than be dysfunctional and underfunded like what they did. So it's again, you know, just a, a misleading argument here. And then just and you just said it well as far as the strategic outcomes, we're looking like the crazy monkey in the in the world right now. Our US global leadership has eroded. Uh, uh, Bar um, excuse me, Biden's going to inherit a more complex, more dangerous global security environment. I mean, what, you, you're handing off something that's just, uh, that has exacerbated within the last four years. So I don't agree with him. Can I just add, I, I also think it's, it's a weird flex, you know, a few days before a full transition of presidential powers is supposed to occur. And it's also, I think, um, flaunting privilege of having, I don't know, like rapid COVID testing to have a maskless, socially undistant meeting would, while you know, regular people uh, continue to suffer under pandemic conditions. Uh, and to, to your point, Terrell, I think the most damning of all is that no one with real swag would actually hashtag swagger. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's just, it feels like a disrespect to culture, honestly. But I, you know, I will say that it, it is very on brand um, for Americans. You know, I think 
I, I, I can't imagine another country um, in charge of, of, of maintaining foreign affairs, you know, tweeting something like this. So, yeah. Yeah, and can I add one more point? That one with like uh, Kim Jong-un, where they're sitting there shaking his hand. Look at the results. He has, he, con he continued to nuclearize, then denuclearize. So when it comes to that, oh, unprecedented historic agreement, as far as getting them to the pathway to denuclearization, that didn't work. So why are you bragging about, oh, we had an unprecedented agreement with them? Well, our strategic results came out to be nothing but a lot worse off to where they have nuclearized. You want to know the irony of all this, though? So Obama, when he was running for office, he was blasted for saying that he would talk with Iran. Y'all remember that? And... I thought that great, you know what I'm saying? Like he, he, cause his whole thing is, um, I think Obama was very mature in understanding the limitations of American power and influence. Right. And so I always believed that his take with the Iran deal was if we have to fight them, I'd rather fight an Iran that is a, a war that is conventional than one that is nuclear. All right. I always believe that that's the main thesis of why he pursued the Iran deal, because remember, there are a whole bunch of Democrats that were against it as well. And there are many reasons, you know, and Chuck Schumer, I thought he gave a very honest response about why he didn't support in regards to Israel. and this war. But I really I appreciated the honesty behind it. Right. But there are a number of lawmakers who had that similar concern about not only Israel, but other allies in the region. I get it. Right. But the thing about Obama is. The deal went through. The Iranians were um, the the Iranians were complying, and then Trump, I think, just out of jealousy, just said, "Fuck y'all, I'm just I'm just taking this shit away." Like, had Obama eventually met with the Iranian leadership, I think that that photo op would have made sense because he got something, yeah. right? He got something. Whereas with Kim Jong Un, he ain't get shit. <laughs> but 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 a big fuck you, you know, that's all he got kim um, kim jong-un was like fuck you and, and did what the fuck he wanted that's the irony of all this shit so for all the bluster you haven't gotten anything dude that's that's the irony of this shit and the person that you're taking down and the person that you despise got something out of this quote-unquote you know um despotic or whatever you probably you choose to call somebody that's a, an adversary right you know he got what he wanted out of iran but he didn't get shit from north korea but look here, here's another thing that's in the news right I, I just think that trump is doing all in his power to make u.s and iran relations even tougher for incoming president joe biden according to the new york times uh two american b-52 bombers flew another show a force mission to the persian gulf um, earlier this week, uh, a week after President Trump warned Iran that it would hold it accountable if one American is killed in rocket attacks in Iraq that the administration and military officials blamed on Tehran. The warplane's 36-hour round-trip mission from Mount, I'm sorry, from uh, Minot Air Force Base in North Dakota was the third time in six weeks that Air Force bombers had conducted long-range flights about 60 miles off the Iranian coast. Moves that military officials said were intended to deter Iran 
from attacking American troops in the region. Asha. Oh, well, it's a visible How effective is For this? sure. It's a, one of the most powerful bombers uh, that send a very strong message uh, to Iran. And it's working in some sense where you're right. It, it's creating a very complicated situation prior to Biden coming in because everyone knows that Biden will re-enter the Iran deal. Uh, but it's but in a, when it comes to that, um, I think the problem is, is that in Iran, they're very split about that Iran deal because of the level of inconsistency going from Obama to Trump. And it's like, oh, how do you how do you uh, now trust the Americans? We're going to go back in, but who's to say they stay in? So in Iran, you're seeing where there was a law passed that they do they will not they do not want to join the Iran deal, and they want to continue uh, building up their nuclear weapons program. Uh, but uh, you're also seeing where if, uh, President Rouhani he's against that, saying no, we will join. So it's it's definitely creating some sort of splintering politically uh, when it comes to Iran. And then also at the at also another point you want to look into it as well is that Iran continues to be in pursuit of their uh, their malign activities throughout the uh, the region. Uh, they're going to continue to be aggressive. But again, you're not seeing the the uh, need for diplomacy here. The Trump administration did not prioritize diplomacy when it came to Iran. A lot of the diplomatic channels were cut off after Obama left. So when it comes to the provocations between the two, it's very dangerous because no one's talking, right? Versus under Obama, when you had John Kerry, he would also, he would be speaking to the foreign minister out in Iran, trying to, you know, cut that off and, and trying to get to some sort of diplomacy on how to resolve their issues. So I think Biden will get to a point where there'll be more, he'll prioritize diplomacy with Iran, but it's going to be harder because of what Trump has done. Mm -hmm. Lovely. Um, so I was just thinking that there's something about um, entering 2021 by getting a whiff of U.S.-Iran tension that almost led to hashtag World War III. Um, you know, I, I remember that giving me a lot of anxiety last year, not knowing that this is first of many trials to come. Um, and, uh, you know, like Asha, I, I understand the intent behind it. Um, as a show of American preparedness um, and force uh, should Iran decide to address, you know, old unhealed wounds um, from a year ago, beginning with the, the death of, of General Soleimani. Um, but I also think that um, to Asha's point, you know, I, it, it's because we've decided to um, not pursue diplomacy. And this is just a classic model of how aggression begets aggression. Um, I'm really looking forward to a Biden administration um, in, in handling this more deftly uh, with diplomacy um, instead of whatever Trump pursued. Uh, I think he calls it maximum pressure or, or whatever. Um, but I do think that the recent news that um, Biden hasn't been receiving intelligence briefings, um, which an incoming president is entitled to, is also equally concerning. So I'd be really curious how all of this sort of unfolds, um, you know, this this month as he he takes on the presidency. So here's the number one problem when we talk about Iran. Most of us, most Americans do not fundamentally understand the country and we don't fundamentally understand the people and we don't know what they really want. OK, so that 
is a problem. And I always talk about this when I talk about Iran. When people talk about the Middle East, they automatically assume that everybody is Arab. Yeah. <laughs> okay? The Iranians are Persians. Okay? You know, I, I just think that pe- there's just basic stuff that I think is very important. And we just put the Middle East in this one big blob of people. <clears throat> and it, as somebody who has an area studies degree, my area de- area studies degree is in Russian, East European, and Eurasian studies. And even that, uh, that encompasses a lot of countries, you know, across that region, right? That includes uh, the Central Asians, the Ka- Kazakhstan, that includes, that, that, that includes Eurasia, like Georgia and Armenia. And that it's, it's just a, a complex region. Even though I am not a Middle East person, because I have an area studies background, it makes me ask questions. And my fundamental question is, what the fuck do these Iranians want? And I don't think that any American politician with any real influence has explained that to me. And I think the closest person who really tried to form at least a conversation was Obama. And everybody else is trying to treat the Iranians like the fucking boogeyman, right? And so, so Asha... Just tell me fundamentally, what do the Iranians want? And then two, is there something that we're missing from their side that we that we have to respect, even though we may not agree with it, but there are there some central issues with them that, hey, this is going to help me understand your insight to why you engage the world, you engage Washington the way you do. Am I what are we missing? Well, it's, it's similar to Russia, where when you say the Iranian people, there's the Iranian government versus regular people. And there is a split. Uh, you'll see with the regular people, they want to be more reintegrated in the um, international community. Uh, the, some definitely want to get along with the United States. They want peace with the United States. Uh, they want a, a, a healthier economy, a stronger economy. That's why they supported the Iran deal, because it opened up funds for them. So. There is a group of, um, of people in the country that want to be more progressive as far as uh, more integrating the international community, getting along with the United States, bringing peace and security uh, together. Now, when you look at the government, it, within the government, it's also split. You know, you have the Ayatollah influences where they're more a little hardcore, hardliner when it comes to Iran's stance in, in the international community where they do want regional hegemonic power in the in the um in the Middle East. They they do compete against Saudi Arabia to uh, achieve that that uh that position and they'll do anything they can to do so. Um and whether they're using conventional uh forces or, or nuclear capabilities, they want to stay relevant, they want to stay competitive, they want that regional hegemonic uh power, which brings which aligns United States, Saudi Arabia and other Gulf countries together. Now you do also have Rohani and some of his uh, supporters where uh, they'll, you'll see them play around with that stance where they want that regional hegemonic power, but they also want uh, peace too, or like they, they'll work very closely with their regional neighbors to get along with them and, and go to summit to say, we want peace uh, in, the, in the Gulf, or we want peace with Israel, not Israel, excuse me, Jordan, and all the other countries, Egypt. So there is a thing where they're really trying to uh, show that, oh, no, we're trying to be peaceful. We want to get along with everyone. 
Now, there, now, what's interesting where you're seeing uh, normalization to Israel, where more countries are getting are trying to get along with Israel, they feel more threatened about it, and um, so they feel that they have to be more aggressive to show, no, we believe in diplomacy and peace. So, Iran, in terms of when it comes to their consensus on where they stand in in the world, it's all over the place. Uh, you know, we compare it to the people, and then they also have some splits within the government. Mm-hmm. So here's the thing, though, lovely. I definitely hear what Asha is saying, but as far as the splits and divisions, I think that's America. I think that's a lot of countries, but the problem is that we selectively choose who we assign nuance to. So I have a very difficult time understanding how we can engage Iran. We can't engage Iran, yet we're constantly engaging Saudi Arabia and they were... You know, within their country, the architects, you know, that there's so many of their people, uh, uh, resident or citizens, uh, were Saudi Arabians who um, were a part of the 911 terrorist attacks. Like, I'm just trying to understand the rationale of who we assign nuance, who do we, you know, who do we give deference to, right? And so, for you, why is it that America has this tough line towards Iran? And what is it going to take for us to really create a policy or a dialogue in which we genuinely work to understand the, uh, the Iranian government and its people? So, you know, I, I hear you um, on, on that. And to be honest, I'm also learning myself. Um, but the one thread to me that's, that's quite apparent for some time now, and I don't necessarily think this just applies to Iran, but anyone who we see as a, a geopolitical threat, which includes you know, Russia, includes um, China. I think that we look at their situation with a tinge of American exceptionalism, right? Um, and I see this a lot from the perspective of you know, the nuclear calculus um, in that you know, I, I see some uh, foreign, American foreign affairs you know, commentators, specialists, talk about how, you know, the only acceptable uh, deal with Iran is if they go, they, they forfeit enrichment altogether, um, which I, again, I can see where that's coming from, given that Iran has pursued, you know, non-peaceful uses of their nuclear program. But in the end, it is such that, um, you know, any country is allowed to pursue peaceful uses and enrichment can be um, used for peaceful uses. And I think that what, when you look at it that way, you know, it, it's so one-sided that we're seeing the, um, uh, how, how other countries' um, intent threaten the United States without necessarily seeing how we haven't do our own due diligence to, to act um, when it comes to disarmament, when it comes to arms control, it's really a give and take. Um, and I think that, you know, moving forward, part of understanding um, and improving uh, Iran relations has to be in some ways inner work on ourselves um, and, and the types of policies that we continue to implement and promote and uphold. Uh, yeah, that's, that's what I've got today. Uh, can I point real quick with, with I think also too what kind of exacerbates or kind of impacts the mindsets of how we should how we look at Iran is our 
military contact with them. So in Syria, they, they have a robust presence there to where it, it antagonizes Israel. Uh, in, in Lebanon with Hezbollah, they're being accused of supporting their forces and creating more instability there. In Iraq, they're everywhere, you know, uh, where it's a, it's a threat to us in many ways. And then also the big, the big uh, uh, situation is in that, with regards to Yemen. Uh, right now, you know, there's some diplomacy efforts that are orchestrated by the UN, but the Houthis have made some inroads on, on uh, you know, controlling a significant amount of territory there as a result of being propped up by Iran. So I think the activities that Iran is in pursuit of impact US foreign policy makers' mindsets on how should we deal with them because they're very active in the region. And, and then also when it comes to great power competition, they are engaged with the United, I mean, with, with China right now. So, and, and in Russia in some ways too. So it, it, I think it's really hard for some policymakers to think with some sort of diplomacy or rationale on how do we deal with Iran because of the ongoing activities that they're reading from these intelligence reports. So here's the thing. Uh, so let's jump into that because I definitely want to hear your thoughts and you love the in response. So I understand that Iran has all these activities, these militias. Like we, I know that. So I, I think that um, I, I get that. What I'm also continuing to learn about is we have to explore why Iran feels like it has this need to protect itself in this way. Okay, one, that, that's another thing too, right? We're just acting like they just were born out of the blue saying, fuck, we just gonna aim shots at all y'all. Like there, this, there's a reason, right? And, and, and so I wanna get more into the reasons behind this and more specifically, what, which your, your points about their activity in the region makes me more curious about why we wanna exacerbate a war a potential war with them. I remember a statement by um, the former president, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, right? He said that if America decides to attack Iran, we will make Iraq look like paradise. Asha, you're the military person here. I, you know, from, from conventional military to the next, I know the uh, you, you Americans are superior, but I just think that the a war with Iran, just even from a straight up military standpoint, would be miserable because military experts are you know that who I've spoken to, I've seen commentary on this area. They talk about the way, like pretty much the way that the country is set up. Um, you know, as far as the mountains and everything, like it's just like tactically, it's just it's hell. You know, from a from from you know from a combat standpoint, but. It just seems like they would have the ability to unleash terrorism on Western targets for decades, right? Because it's not just about military um, fighting. So to me, it's like them showing that, you know, we may not be able to beat you straight up, but we have all these different militia groups that can give you hell. Like, am I thinking, am I in the right direction here? I, this is me asking a question more than anything. Uh, yeah, no, I think you are uh, in some ways. Yeah, uh, I agree. Um, I will tell you, though, they like more of the indirect threats or attacks, uh, like building up terrorist cells, using proxy groups, uh, you know, to target uh, some of our regional allies in the United States. But let's get to the point where you're saying, why? Why are they doing this? Uh, and this is what kind of 
is kind of like not so good when it comes to United States involvement in the Middle East. This goes back to the the, the sectarian strife between Shia and Sunni communities, where you know they they just traditionally don't get along um, in many ways. Uh, you know, most of the our regional partners are Sunni uh, majority, and they see Shia as a way of spreading their influences in the region. It's uh, a threat, but then that's also misleading too, because when I was out there for uh, almost four years, I've seen Shia and Sunni communities get along. They can live together, they, they get along. So it, it, you got, you know, sometimes those external influences that come from the West or other parts are exacerbating those, um, those type of relationships too. So, you know, you got two of those going on at the same time. But what's interesting about Iran is that their military is uh, like a middle power military. It's it's not stronger than the United States. But they're willing to punch you in the nose if you keep bothering them. We saw that when they shot down our drone reconnaissance capability, right? When, when General Soleimani thing happened, the maximum pressure campaign happened, all that. Then they shot, uh, we had our drone reconnaissance capability flying around, they shot it down. They're willing to, to you know, kick you in the knee and run. They're not gonna sit here and just look and not do anything and so i i do believe they will do something back but but to the point where they don't want to go to war with us but they'll hit back you know to where you could feel that they're you know upset with you so um but that's what makes it more vulnerable to a potential war you know where they're willing to hit back uh so you know or retaliate re retaliatory uh activities so that's what makes this situation somewhat scary and when we're going to the anniversary of the assassination of general Soleimani, and you had the b-52 bombers flying around and you had rocket attacks at the uh, u.s embassy in iraq it's too provocative and because the tensions are too high and again there's no diplomatic channels excellent excellent so Let's dig into this foreign policy article by Doug Bandow, who is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. And lovely, I see you, you know, smiling along. So I, I see you, I see you. But listen, uh, he's a former special assistant to President Ronald Reagan, author of several books, um, including Tripwire Korea and U.S. Foreign Policy in a Changed World. So I reviewed this article twice, and here's the title of it. And it's under the argument at foreign policy. It's... Uh, America's Asian allies need their own nukes. And the subtext is want to cut costs and contain China, allow friendly nuclear proliferation. I don't know what the fuck friendly nuclear proliferation means. And I tried to read it multiple times as I went into this article. And, you know, so just to be clear, just to give the article its full shot. So, you know, for what it is. And so the argument is that he... <clears throat> He believes that we will cut costs because he talks about at the beginning of the article uh, that, yes, China for um, Biden is going to be the most serious foreign challenge. Right. And he's also dealing with these domestic issues. Uh, and, and I'm quoting from his article. Moreover, domestic needs and international wants will increasingly clash as America entered 2020. The federal budget deficit was expected to run one point one trillion combating the coronavirus pandemic and providing economic relief pushed that number to 3.1 trillion it will be more than 2 trillion this year and could go much higher if congress and the president agree on a new stimulus package right um and so he makes a he makes an argument uh that goes into for example how america is deemed as a protector of all these nations that don't 
fund their militaries proportionately, right? And so you saw that, and there's a even there's some conversation even within that, right? Because every every military is not built to occupy, right? That's the so. But anyway, let me give the full. Let me let me fully go through this article, uh, right? Just just to give the guy a chance, you know. So so um, can and so it talks about the fact that you know it goes into NATO about these countries like if they would have the right to defend themselves, you know, um, particularly with nukes, um, you know, this would help. So I'll go to that part where he says. There's one way to square the circle. The Biden administration should reconsider reflexive U.S. opposition to friendly proliferation. Ironically, current policy ins ensures that nuclear weapons are held by only the worst Asian states, authoritarian and revisionist China and Russia. Um, Lovely is holding it together, but I'm going to read through. Islamist and... <laughs> And unsuitable Pakistan, illiberal and Hindu nationalist India, and totalitarian and threatening North Korea. Against all these, Washington is supposed to defend Japan and South Korea, certainly the Philippines, Australia, and possibly uh, Taiwan, conceivably. This is dangerous for everyone, especially the United States. And so he goes into this idea of, you know, um, saying that friendly nuclear weapons would be a deterrent. I don't agree at all, but I want to hear Lovely's thoughts about her her reactions to 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 um to this article. Yeah, I, I also don't agree. <laughs> um, you know, I, I understand the argument just because this is the line of exceptionalist thinking that has persisted for decades. You know that as a superpower, um, the United States is unfairly burdened by keeping the peace um, everywhere. Ergo, the world is just freeloading on America's good graces. Um, but, but I will address um, a few things. So the first, I think that the article absolves the United States of its historic interest in the region. Um, I was particularly interested in the multiple times that uh, the author cites the Philippines, um, repeatedly mentioning it as, um, I think he says um, that it's it's barely making an effort. Um, but this is, you know, very shallow analysis considering that the United States occupied the Philippines for forty eight years, and its continued presence is more than what the author suggests. So, you know, there's going back to our conversation about Iran, right? It's onion layers, you peel it. There's so many different dimensions and you can't really just boil it down to this particular argument, um, in my opinion. Um, and then the second thing that I raise is that it doesn't, the article doesn't address China's no first use policy, um, which should be factored in when you're considering more nukes in the region, especially as a response to, to Beijing's rise. You know, to encourage Asian countries to take up nuclear weapons is actually, I think, more destabilizing um, because it suggests that China's own nuclear posture is not to be believed and that possessing nukes is the only guarantee. So yeah, I think, you know, I I would say that if, if anything, that the, the article does raise the point that China will continue to put the region on the edge. Sure, that's a perfectly fair observation. 
I just don't agree with the logical leaps to nukes as as the answer. So I'll I'll, I'll stop there and and let Asha or you know Terrell if, if you have more. Well, go ahead, Asha. What, what are you thinking about? Because I want to I want to listen to what you have to say. Then I'll talk. I agree on a lot with Lovely said. Um, I'll just add on more. Um, if, if you re recently saw Biden's uh, president like a Biden's um efforts, um, well he he pretty much wants to restore U.S. Uh, nuclear nonproliferation efforts. So uh, his argument goes against what this article is saying. And um, also, this article is dismissing or discrediting the United States providing a nuclear umbrella for our, our ASEAN um, non-nuclear states in the region. They're saying it's too much of a burden. Um, you know, United States is, gonna, is not going to be able to really know how to provide that nuclear umbrella like it does with, you know, Saudi Arabia in regards to Iran. So they, so they need to proliferate on their own because the United States won't be able to do that. Um, I, I could see what he's saying, but I think we, I think it's just dismissing the fact that we got to get the community back into, uh, denuclearizing, uh, being more committed to nuclear nonproliferation efforts, getting China to do the same thing. Like we've been trying to do with Russia, but Trump evidently, uh, went against those efforts for four years. So I think it's just a matter of restoring it, uh, to where we want to get the whole community to be behind in that. Um, also to, uh, going back, I might be a little bit off topic with this one, but China has expanded its nuclear weapons program because there's been, uh, not only because it's part of, uh, their establishing their, um, their global image in a way that they're coming off more tough, but also to, uh, United States is not necessarily engaged with them with nuclear nonproliferation efforts. So we don't want to underestimate United States power here because, once we get back to that, I think that is uh, what's going to kind of make them want to counter it more in terms of being in pursuit of nuclear proliferation. Uh, American power is, I've seen, works. It's just that the problem with it is that it's inconsistent. And when it comes to nuclear nonproliferation efforts around the world, it's, it's been inconsistent for the past eight years because of the Trump administration. So... We'll see, but I think uh, for the most part, Biden is definitely more uh, committed to nuclear nonproliferation efforts, and we'll see how that plays out moving forward, especially dealing with the Iran deal. Well, lovely. Here are a couple of issues that I thought about. One, not only does China have a, a no first use policy, their nuclear policy, and I, and I was, as I was, when I left, I was looking for this book that I read on Chinese nuclear thinking. And it was really fascinating because their nuclear policy dates back to General uh, Mao. And the, the belief is that even if we engage in a nuclear war, we're going to need a conventional battle to complete it. Yeah. That is, it, it, so, so that's the way that they think about it. It's not an end all be all. So this is the thinking that's been going on for decades. And a lot of folks don't know that compared to America and Russia, China is in the hundreds when it comes to its nuclear weapons uh, with its warheads, right? They don't have that many because they don't fundamentally believe that they need that many. So, so, so that was their thinking for a while. And here's an odd thing that the Trump administration did in these last talks with New Start. They wanted to get Russia, I'm not Russia, but China and fucking New Start. You know, I'm okay. Okay, so so let me just talk about how stupid this shit is, right? Just for okay, this is a little bit in the weeds for a lot of folks. So, 
it's it's so dumb. And I'm when I break it down for y'all, for the listeners, you will understand that it's really dumb. So, and I've had a nuclear arms uh, a monitor explain this shit to me. When you like with Russia, when you go in, the way that the way that um the warheads are already on the uh, on, on the missiles, right? So you go in, and so they'll be like, when you go in for an inspection. And you're like, okay, I want to go to silo two. You go to silo two, you go in and you look at the warhead and all this other shit. The Chinese, all their shit yeah, is the yeah. couple, you know, it's separated. Right? So the whole question is, if we bring them, the Chinese into the regime, we're going to have to completely change the way that we monitor their weapons. You know, like we're going to have to completely change the regime of it. And so it doesn't make sense. Right? And so... The way that they have their their system set up, it's just it's completely different, mm. and so there is no planning. Like it, it, even as the e, even when the information was coming to us, interestingly and oddly enough, via Twitter, y'all remember that? You know, yeah. like shit that y'all that people talk about in the back room. Shit is just like on the time. I'm like, where the fuck is this coming from, right? But the Chinese handle you know, the storing of their weapons and, you know, just their warheads very differently. And so, and it's completely different from how the Russians do it. And then they also, and then the Chinese were like, okay, if y'all drop down to our levels, we'll join. Yeah. 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 Which if I were them, I would say the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. If I were them. Yeah. Okay. It, 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 it's, but going back to our earlier hopes for the year, competency. Okay, <laughs> that's that's what I'm hoping for as I'm going for competency, and I'm just happy that Biden's going to be handling this issue. But yeah, you know, listen, we I, I definitely enjoy taking on um, people who think different from me, but I think it's a consensus that we don't do not agree with Doug Bandow's, um argument about friendly nuclear weapons, right? Can, can I add one thing? Um, I, and I'm having a hard time articulating this, but I'll try. I think it re really boils down to the framing of issues as American. To me, it just seems like American naval gazing. Like going back to your point about um, including China in this new start, if you really unpack that, right? It's not really about the greater good. It's not really about arms control. It's really about looking yeah. good and looking tough. Um, and to me, that's what matters. If you don't um, make space for understanding how other countries may respond, the philosophical or cultural underpinnings as to why they have nukes in the first place, you're going to miss the point. Um, and I think that that's I, I really am looking forward to um, a new administration that will have competence in that cultural, historical um, underpinnings because the past you know, four years, we've um, pursued not only, um, well, we haven't really pursued arms control, but like anything that we've pursued in foreign affairs has always been a navel gazing like how we can look good in front of everyone yeah. else and not really about the work um so i think this is just a manifestation of, of that yeah so i, I want to get into the next segment about how has 2020 prepared us for 2021 
2021. And Asha, you ran for office. Uh, and I really would like for you to talk to us about what you learned, why you decided to run, and mm-hmm. and um, and you didn't you didn't go past the uh, the primary, and so but you you learned a lot. I take it, and so just talk to us about that. Oh yes. Uh, first and foremost, thank you for allowing me to address this. I won't take this too long. I didn't know you're you're here, but it's it's definitely good, some good lessons. First and foremost, this opportunity that I, as far as running for office, has been one of the most undemocratic op- uh, process I ever went through in my life. Close to racism. Why is that? Because it's all about money. Politics does not care if you found the cure to cancer or discover the moon. If you don't have money, especially when, it runs to, when you're running a congressional race, you will be delegitimized. And so when we talk about money here, why is that such a big factor? Well, first and foremost, in the first phase of running, uh, there are these political operatives that will delegitimize you as much as possible. But when you're someone that, like me who comes from low middle class that does not necessarily have access to a whole lot of capital, you know, it's a big struggle for you to run for office. So, uh, so I had a couple of my opponents, uh, one bought the seat, the other uh, who actually won. He had no problem from day one. He's been in for two years from day one, growing his money. He's getting money from big tech companies. He's getting money from law firms, all that. He is not similar to what we saw what happened with Jamal Bowman and AOC. The, those two ran, when they first ran, they did not have money for a long time. One got uh, lucky because Ingalls said something that upset everyone and a whole bunch of money started coming in. And the other one got money because she did a fantastic video that touched hearts and then got money at, at, at the end right before the primary. The guy I went against who tried to be like them, he had money the whole time, even during the pandemic, which gets to my second point. Don't ever run for office during a pandemic when you had to raise a lot of money because people will not give you money, the average folks. But it shows you also the separate, uh, it, it kind of shows you the differences in terms of income. Rich people have money during a pandemic. Regular people and poor people do not. I, at one point, was asking people for $5 and they couldn't even give me. They told me to take my donation page down. So I had a hard time raising money. So, uh, and it's very unfortunate that we have a democratic process that relies on money to determine who wins. And then last but not least, it's not that, you know, when I bring up money, people go, oh, you think I voted for uh, this person because they have a lot of money? It's not just that. It's the fact that money helps spread your message. So when, for instance, commercials, you have to pay for commercials. And that is like about over $100,000. I mean, Richie Torres is a perfect example of this. He had the coronavirus when he was running. He came out of nowhere with a whole bunch of commercials starting May, all the way into the primary, and it helped him win the race. A lot of people can't do that because it costs too much money just to put up an ad or a commercial. You know, um, then, you know, you have, uh, um, you know, the radio doing all this stuff. It costs a lot of money. And a lot of Americans don't know about how much this costs. They think, oh, I saw this person. So this person is more legit than you. So at the end, the third point is a lot of voters are low information voters. They don't know, they don't, they lack the political competence on how this works. Most voters vote based on the very end, what's being fed to them through commercials, through radio, 
to on the internet. So if you got the money to push, 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 push the, the message, they're going to think, oh, this person is more legitimate than you. I don't see you out there. So they're going to vote for that person. Last but not least, George Floyd definitely impacted my race to a point where in my district, white guilt kicked in, white guilt went with a black candidate. Uh, I, and, and, and you're saying, well, you're black, so why did they go with you? They went with the one with the most money because they saw that person more than me. So that also helped too as well. White guilt helped Jamal Bowman get into as well. Uh, you know, prior to Ingalls, I mean, after Ingalls' um, uh, message, that terrible thing he did out there, then what came was George Floyd. So that definitely helped the mood and you could see that the polls started changing towards the end. So you have a lot of different factors, but I, I encourage everyone to end to support End Citizens United campaign finance reform because people should have a fair opportunity to be assessed on whether they can re represent you in Congress and it should not be based on money. Hey, thank you very much. I mean, I, I just want to tell you that somebody with your experience, I, we definitely need more people like you in Congress because like I said, we, we talk about security and, and defense and who's better to talk about that than a veteran and somebody who's an officer and somebody who, you know, who, who, who understands these systems, but also not just a person who has military experience, but somebody who understands how much military do we need. Right, right. And I said, and I just want to say one more point. I said to my voters, I mean, the people in my district, we need someone in Congress that understands the world and our domestic issues and how they intersect not someone who has no idea about our global security environment. You cannot, you should not send someone to Congress that has no idea about what's going on around the world. We do it all the time though. <laughs> they do it all the time, right? And, but it's because the voters don't have the, the, uh, the aptitude or the competence to test them on, on national security foreign policy issues. You know, and, and, it's, and some of it's not their fault because this country has to do a better job investing people, educating them, getting good jobs. So the learning curve is at an all-time low because most, most Americans are struggling. So they don't really have the time to understand what goes on around the world. You'll see them more in tune with it when you have like a 9-11. And I thought during my race, they would be more in tune about it with the pandemic because the pandemic evidently came outside of the United States. It wasn't here, it came from overseas. And then it hit us beyond our borders and hit us bad, right? So, but still they were not in tune with, oh, we really need someone that has a national security perspective, who's done crisis management, who understands how this world works, but it's, it's just not there, you know, and I hopefully it will, but it's only one reason because we're not really investing in the American people to have that education, that those economic opportunities to understand how the world works. Absolutely, so lovely. I'm really into your bombshell toe collective because I, I just love how the idea of using art and taking pop culture to help people understand, you know, these these issues, right? Because so many of us, they're not like us who study this stuff all the time, specifically. There are folks, and I say this as a political reporter, I travel around the country covering local elections and, and, and national elections, and most people are just trying to get by in their day. Right. Which makes my job as a journalist important, which makes, you know, all of our work, your work, lovely, your work, Asha, you know, the things that you do so very important because they're depending on us and notice because we have the time and the privilege to really think about these things. Um, 
And I, when I think about your, the bombshell toe collective, I think about this article I did with, I compare Putin to Marlo Stanfield from the wire. And there are so many people who loved it because I took a culture, a pop culture example that they understood and broke it down using facts. But anyway, love that. I'm just, just tell me more about why you started this collective because you got it from a grant from the state department in 2013 to move forward yeah. with it. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Well, first of all, I, I just want to say, Terrell, thank you for pairing we, me with Asha because I'm, I'm just so honored um, to hear and learn from someone who's out there demystifying the political process. Um, I see sort of bombshell toe being on the other side of it, kind of behind the, the curtain doing the culture shift to engage and encourage folks to be part of our community, to think more deeply about foreign policy. And maybe who knows, you know, they might uh, be so interested in it that they see themselves in places like the State Department or running for Congress. Like I'm, I'm really interested in using arts and community engagement as sort of a long form um, way of putting people in the pipeline that look like us. Because I, I, I just wanna, mentioned that I, I never really dreamed of being a nuclear policy analyst to begin with, you know, like I stumbled into that profession. Um, and a lot of people, um, well, some people tell me, oh, you should just own it, say that you've always intended it, it to be this way. But I honestly, like, we, we have to tell the truth that it's, it's hard to, to, um, be in these kinds of spaces because oftentimes people of color, you know, women of color don't really know that these doors even exist for us to walk through. And so I think Bombshell Toe to me um, is my way, my creative way of creating guardrails to, to get people, uh, you know, interested um, in the issues that may seem technical and granular to us. Um, and yeah, it started off with, um, actually, uh, I, I have to, to give her credit. I have a, a, a friend, her name is Sayaka Shingu. She's, she's Japanese. Um, and she was the one who basically told me the story of Godzilla and, you know, the Godzilla movie in Japan is inextricably tied to the nuclear testing in the Pacific. Um, and as an American, I didn't know that partly because our version of Godzilla basically erased that plot line, right? And so uh, with that story, and I've just always been a consumer of culture. Um, I, um, I've always wanted to be an artist, a writer. And so it just seemed like a natural path to bring these two spheres, you know, the, the politics, the foreign policy side that I'm always interested in and the creative artistic side that's always been in me. Um, and moving forward for, for 2021, um, I'm more interested in creating culture, not just sort of, you know, talking about other existing uh, videos or movies. I, I'm interested in collaborating with people of color uh, to talk about nuclear histories that have always been there, but have never been discussed. Um, so one of the things that I'm excited about is uh, Ways of Knowing, which is a project, it's been a multi-year project, it started in 2017, um, to better understand 
nuclear weapons production processes uh, from the perspective of indigenous communities. Um, and so I, I've been working with um, Navajo community members, Sunny Dewey, uh, Professor Perry Charlie in Dinette College to just understand what happened and the relationship to land in the ways we, we build the bomb. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I hope to, to bring that story um, into uh, sort of the mainstream, not necessarily telling the story myself because it's not my story to tell, but rather I think, you know, it's just from a perspective of, of an immigrant nuclear policy analyst realizing that um, there's so much that I still need to learn um, in, in my own field, including this untold history. Um, that's literally just in our backyards um, and, and actually deeply affect communities. Like you don't necessarily have to be in some grand policy table in Vienna to feel this at home. Um, and then the other project that I'm really interested in um, is called Bloom. Um, and it's essentially a study of the flora and fauna related to nuclear catastrophes. Um, so seeing uh, or telling the story of all of the, 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 uh, the plants that survived Hiroshima and Nagasaki. A lot of activists have already done um, work in telling these stories, but I'm particularly interested in seeing how we can possibly bridge that to nuclear diplomacy. Um, I don't know if you guys have heard um, of that one time in 1996 um, as part of the Nunn-Luger sort of effort, um, arms control effort, um, they planted uh, sunflowers in Ukraine um, commemorating the, the dismantlement of, of missile silos uh, in the country. And to me, that's so interesting that they decided to use um, that gesture as part of arms control. And I'm just really curious about how we can think about it creatively moving forward as we pursue, hopefully, um, under the Biden uh, administration and beyond, like how we can integrate these kinds of environmental um, activities and, and gestures to really find a genuine intersection between environmental security and nuclear policy. So that's all to say, I'm, I'm really weird. I love bringing in different elements. Um, I have a uh, I, I had a stint in government, the think tank world, but really for 2021, I just want to embrace more community engagement and artistic thinking in my practice. And, and we'll see how that goes. The two of us have a similar uh, approach. It's very interdisciplinary. And we borrow from a lot of disciplines in order to create the vision that we want. For me, my goal is to better help the average American who generally wouldn't have an interest in the things that we're talking about to create a, a space, thus my podcast, right? I'm, I'm working to create a space where people We'll have an entry point where they can understand things. So if you saw, if you notice the format, we're we're talking about a lot of things from the U.S. standpoint, but as global implications. And I'm doing that because 
on its own, no one may necessarily care about Chinese Russia nuclear policy on its own, right? We're into it because it's what we do. But I think my job is to create content in a way that they're engaged in it, where they can find something, some entry point, and particularly with our veterans. I have a lot of veterans and a lot of military people on our show because everybody can relate to somebody being in the army or being in the air force or being in the Marines. Like we all have somebody that relates to that. And we know what the consequences of war means because we have a family member who we don't want to go. Right. And then when we talk about COVID-19 about money and appropriation, they may not care about the intricacies of the Pentagon budget. But when you start talking to people from a taxpayer perspective about how much of that money that's going into this albatross that can go into their pockets, then they're going to have an interest, right? And so my podcast from 2020 evolved where I had these wide range of topics. And then now I'm going more into how do you feel safe? What makes you feel secure? I know when I'm walking down New York City, when I think about security, because there are a lot, there are some shootings that take place. There, there is increased definitely. I live in Bed Stuy. One part of Bed Stuy where I'm at, I'm at the edge here in Brooklyn. It's pretty quiet. You go further up towards Gates and Nostrand, it's a little bit live over there, right? So. And this is just within a within a neighborhood in the borough of Brooklyn. And when I think about safety, I think about at what what point does someone decide that I need to slash someone? I have to harm someone with a weapon. So what's the psychology? What what what's the social work elements uh, that we need to deploy in order to eliminate this need to harm someone else? That's what I'm interested in, and I say this because. Personally, I grew up in a house, both my uncle sold drugs and anybody who listened to this podcast know my life. I had the very quintessential boys in the hood life, not just observing it, but living in it. I tell everybody, the only thing I didn't do was sell drugs. You know, everything else about how rough the life was, seeing violence and all those things. Like I saw all of those things and I was a witness to it, whether it be in my home or whether it just outside my door. And... When I think about security, I think that's what many people think about. They think about how is my body going to be secure? And I think a lot of people don't think, oh, I want a police officer at every corner. The police come after the fact. They come after the fact, but they don't stop crime. They 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 investigate crime. They are not crime stoppers. Education, um, uh, Home, having the roof over your head. Th those are things that I stand by, right? And so when I talk about security, it's more about how do we take money from things that people have convinced us that make us secure to other things, right? Balancing, you know, like you we were talking about, Asha, you know, how do, you know, this thing about balancing, you know, our national and domestic interests. I believe that there are ways that we could do that. And I'm doing that with my podcast. So moving forward, I want to be that person to demystify the foreign policy space, the nuclear foreign policy space. It's not the Illuminati. It's for a whole bunch of white men who, unlike you, lovely, will not admit that I still have a lot to learn. 
Okay. So, so the fact that you say I have a lot to learn, that is such a, 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 a very uh, pleasant thing to say that is so inconsistent with the white male leadership that is dragging us into all the shit that we're in. Right. You know, well, but, but that's, go ahead. Were you going to well, say something? What I want to say is I, I think you're, you're actually, uh, fighting two fronts, the one you're just mentioning, and also, like you said, the foreign policy establishment. Uh, you and I just recently talked about how Dr. Kathleen Hicks for Juneteenth uh, recognized your work on Twitter. And I thought that was awesome. I was so shocked, though. <laughs> I mean, because I'm fucking like, I'm like, I, I'm, I'm still shocked. Yeah, and so I think, I, I think when when you have someone like her recognize you on Juneteenth, you know, it might be as small, innocent, but it's showing you the progression of how you're the establishment mm -hmm. about the work you're doing and we need to we need to you know we need to continue going down that path and i think it does work you know she's you know just working with her you have educated her a lot about diversity inclusion and different thoughts and how you look at security so um so i think you know keep going but it's not only just worrying about the security in your community but also continuously engaging with the establishment you know to kind of like you know either agree with them or disagree on them how they should look at security I'm I'm happy that you brought, you know, it's important for me to hear that. And it's not that I don't want to engage. It's, I just, you know, I do, no, I really do. I'm a part of the Atlantic Council uh, a group and I'm a non-resident fellow there and I'm happy I'm there. And they're, listen, they're awesome. They're supportive of me. They pay for my, my Russian language classes, you know, and I get to write and do things as I'm trying to get my Russian to a next level. And like, they're, they're great, right? I was just honestly surprised because I have such a a far left perspective on things, you know, and it's not because I just want to be this radical that agitates people. It's just that I am definitely somebody who wants to disrupt the neoliberal concept of the way that we do foreign policy, not because I'm doing it as a hashtag. It's just fundamentally, I see how neoliberalism has harmed my life. Okay. <laughs> you know, it, it it hurts me. And as somebody who has dealt with the, the neighborhoods I come from, being a black man that grew up the way that I grew up, I it would be contradictory to my existence to accept American exceptionalism as a norm, right? I, I just can't, fundamentally based on how I have lived. And because of my education and knowing how does urban planning create the neighborhoods in Detroit that I grew up in, or the Cabrini Greens of the world, and how the migration, when you start reading those things wrapped from the other sons. I believe that's the name of the book. Um, yeah, the other son. When you start understanding migration periods and you get this political education, it makes you think differently. And I want to create a space where folks that grow up on the block like me, people who you would like you would never think, like that kid from the block, where his male role models are dope dealers. Like you would never, you know, that kid that comes from there, you just pass by, would be having this podcast or have a Kathleen Hicks say, oh, dope, good job, right? I want to inspire other people to think that way because I, you know, and I'm encouraged, Asha, by that, but I'm most happy that I, I'm engaged in these spaces being myself. Yeah. And having the knowledge that I have and having my, and I'm, and I lean into it. And because, and, and it makes me feel good that no matter how much I lean into myself, people are like, okay, I'm here to listen. So that's encouraging.
because ultimately I want, I believe in people like Kathleen Hicks, like in good faith that we want a better world and I'm willing to grow myself to be on those platforms where we can do it together. But it's important on myself and it's just promising that people are, you know, being received, you know, receptive of it. But finally, I want to close out by asking you all, what can America learn from the world? So, Asha, what is a lesson that the good old America, you know, United States of America can learn from somebody else? Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to be on point with this. I, what, what I'm learning on the top of my head, um, and I, I said this recently uh, to a lot of foreign policy experts, um, the, the America has to learn that this this environment is rapidly changing. And, um, and what we're learning is some countries, especially in the South-South cooperation, they're leaning more towards the East, looking for ideas, they're becoming more educated in institutions in the East. Uh, what we're seeing too is that countries are learning how to move along without American power. Uh, they're finding different opportunities without the United States being there, uh, whether you're dealing with um, environmental issues, energy, uh, you know, but the Trump administration has definitely uh, opened up the door with where countries have learned to not rely on America as much and to rely on themselves or look for other partners to fill in, um, you know, that, that need they need to look for. So that's one thing. And another two, what America has learned too as well is that there's a lot of emerging economies out there that are uh, rapidly growing uh, and they're securing uh, economic ties in different countries with the United States not involved. Uh, and I think that's gonna definitely reshape the global economy in the long run. Um, and you're already seeing that uh, there was an article that came out recently by not 2030, but supposedly by 2025, China will be uh, the, the, uh, you know, the wealthiest economy in the global economy. So I think uh, in terms of what we're seeing overall, the, the world is moving on its own without US uh, global power involved. And they definitely learned that lesson under the Trump administration. And with the Biden administration coming in where they're trying to restore itself, reassert itself in these different economic, military, environmental ties, it, we're gonna, the test is gonna see on whether they're gonna come back to us or they're gonna uh, say, hey, we, we, we learned that we don't really need to work with you, we're gonna go work with someone else. So that's going to be very interesting to see how that works out uh, moving forward. Lovely. I, I, I want, just want to say I love this question. I think it's, it's a way that we can get away from what I said about navel gazing that we, we tend to do as, as a country. Um, I actually have something very specific in mind, and I hope it complements Asha's you know, macro insights. Um, so when, uh, well, it, this was in 2019, um, I had the opportunity to live in Aotearoa, New Ooh. Zealand for a month. Um, and one of the, yeah, um, and I, I miss traveling too, oh my goodness. Um, but what was really surprising um, was that they have this open relationship with the Maori community, um, you know, which is the indigenous population in the country. I know that I was an, an outsider looking in, not everything's perfect, but um, I was just struck by the country's attempt to 
learn and recenter the culture um, of indigeneity uh, because it just seems so advanced and humane. You know, they had street signs in Maori, they had a TV channel um, with Maori. And I heard that during the pandemic, um, there were some educational institutions that offered free resources to, to citizens in New Zealand so that they can learn the Maori language since it's considered um, a vulnerable language. So I, I don't know if this is a specific policy or if this was culture that was just cultivated over time, but I would love to live in an America that considered some of these things to restore relations with native people. Um, and you know, last year is all bad news, but I remember feeling particularly scared um, when the Trump administration tried to roll out, I don't know if you guys remember this, the concept of patriotic education as a response to the New York Times 1619 project. Like that to me, going back to our conversation earlier about the truth, like that is such a violation of truth and democracy. Um, you know, I, well, anyway, I, I'm sure that there are certain um, unique uh, and intangible factors that played into what happened in New Zealand. But I, I just, I'm curious what that looks like to, um, uh, to be replicated in the United States. And I just wonder, you know, trying to bridge this to what Asha said earlier, you know, the ways that we treat people at home, I wonder how that will translate to the ways that we behave abroad and how the world in turn um, looks at us. And, and hopefully that will pave the path to a, a better future. I don't know. Yeah, post George Floyd. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're gonna go to the Chinese and say, you should not be doing that to the Uyghurs and, or, or what you're doing in Hong Kong is not right. They're gonna slap in your face. Well, look how you treat black people. They had a lot of propaganda about George Floyd in China saying, look, the democracy doesn't work. So it's gonna be interesting where the United States as they go into restore human rights abroad, how those countries are gonna respond, especially their, from their adversaries or competitors. Mm -hmm. So what's funny about this patriotic education? I don't, you know, Helen Nicole Jones, she did a public service with that one, boy. Um, it, it, they were so irked and so enraged by. It. Okay, so I'm look, I'm looking at um, Secretary Pompeo's Twitter page. 1619 Project has the history exactly backward. Our founding is not evil. It is noble. America was founded by visionaries who knew we'd always strive for a more perfect union. This is one of his tweets from January 1st. So, dude, you're getting ready to leave. Okay. And of all the things that you could be talking about making Biden's transition easier, you want to talk about this, you know, but this is, it's wild, but my request uh, about what America can learn from other countries is, can we get a bullet train like Japan? and like other countries in Europe because our Amtrak 
service. And I'm not even talking about the workers. I'm just talking about the infrastructure. It's just awful. What's that? Let Buddha know that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but when you think about it, I mean, seriously. But so, so even here in New York City, a lot of people don't know our rail system. And I'm going to double check this, but I'm sure it's more. It's a more than 100 years old, right? In New York City, it's old, and every time there's always a signal. There's a signal issue. It's not working. It's delayed all the time. And meanwhile. The time from when I first moved to New York City, a metro car was roughly $92, $93. And I think it's roughly $130 now. And, I, and I, I'm not exactly sure because I'm thinking about this at the top of my head as we're talking. Like, it's it's gone up. The price of a metro car for a monthly pass has gone up exponentially. And I understand costs go up but think about how many new yorkers can't afford a monthly pass yeah yeah right that's that's another thing to consider right just the, and so i say all of this about our transportation because in detroit where i grew up if you don't have a car you're screwed and many of the jobs that a lot of detroiters take take them to the suburbs and there are a lot of suburban communities that don't want public transportation transporting black folk into their communities. And there's a lot of stories that have been written on this. All you have to do is talk about transportation, racism in Detroit, like it's all there. But I think that America, we we have misprioritized our spending and priorities so much to the point where we have this, this really decimated uh, transportation system. And so, and it's not just having a bullet train, which would be nice, because I don't think it should take three hours or th three hours plus to get from New York to DC. I just don't, right? Um, it also plays a role in how the average citizen can travel to work, right? Because again, everybody's not going to have a car. And if we make transportation a privilege, then where do we go? I just think, you know, even when I go to Ukraine, for example, even though their systems are old, there are just so many ways in which people can get around the country, right? And with America, it's just not that way. And so I just hope that we will be able to learn from other countries that investing in your public transportation systems, uh, bullet trains, it will be very beneficial for Americans. Just think about the money that can come from, from, from construction work uh, for our communities, if we invest in a, in in, in um, our public transport, so that's my vision. So that's what I wish that Americans would learn from other countries that you know you don't have to drive every damn where. So, all right, that's how polarized we are. We can't even pass an infrastructure bill, and suppose that was a bipartisan thing, right? Especially because of the uh, Trump administration. I thought we were going to see at least an infrastructure bill, but we couldn't even do that because we're so polarized. He talked about it. You know what's interesting though? He did talk about it, and I was yeah, never going. Yeah, I, I, I was never going to vote for the man, but he was one of the few people right. that was talking about a, a transportation system. And I'm like, if you're going to be an asshole and come in on the way you came in, and if you're going to be Johnny Badass, at least bulldog some good shit that we can benefit from. Yes, exactly.
and he couldn't but you know the thing about it is that since he talks out the side of his mouth and he probably doesn't mean a lot of the shit that he says he just says it and moves on to something else he probably forgot about it or forgot that he meant that he said it so anyway that's what i want and hopefully with uh Buttigieg coming in that we can at least get that process going but in order for that to make sense we need to have uh john ossoff and reverend Raphael warnock elected to the senate so if y'all are listening i ain't gonna pretend to be objective y'all in georgia we we need to get them into office so we can get some shit done let's just just be real because all the things about safety that we've been talking about on this show and we're gonna have a hard time getting that shit to come through if we don't have those two people those two men in georgia in the senate so well, it's very unfortunate it has to take that. It should be a bipartisan spirit. You know, I, one reason why I went to national security is because I came in through studying in China and Shanghai. And I mean, the, the train systems, the transit system is just ridiculous. I mean, it's so updated. I mean, I wish if every American could see how fast, I mean, how quick they are with building their infrastructure. And, you know, of course, the BRI initiative is just all over the globe right now. They would, I think it would make everyone take that more serious. And it's also dangerous. You know, there's bridges that are breaking down. There's a lot of times that come along and if you don't upgrade your infrastructure projects, I mean, it's just, it's not good for us. It should be bipartisan. It's unfortunate it has to rely on the, the Senate um, uh, race down in Georgia. Yeah, but listen, Asha, lovely. We did a show today. Thank y'all for coming on. This has been fun and we'll definitely have y'all on again. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, uh, me too. Happy New Year, guys. Thank you so much for having Happy me. Happy New Year, lovely. And Terrell, thank you. And Mike. <laughs>